You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm joined by James Butler, one of the founders of Navarra Media and now a contributing editor at the LRB. His most recent piece for the paper was on the UK's care crisis and we'll be talking about that a bit. They're also surveying the very sorry state of British politics more broadly. Hello James and thank you for talking with me. Hi Tom, it's a pleasure to be here. So there's a month to go until local elections in 230 councils across England. Most of the seats in play were last contested in 2019, when the Conservatives lost more than a 1,000 council seats, Labour lost a dozen, Lib Dems, Liberal Democrats and Greens and others made gains. What's likely to happen this time? Well, I mean, there aren't uh, an enormous number of polls specifically on the local elections, but the ones that have been conducted suggest to us that Labour's going to do really fairly well, that it, it has, uh, I think the, the polling I saw had Labour with a 20-point lead in the areas that are that are being re-elected. And as you say, that's not all, you know, all local authorities, it's mostly the ones, uh, they're mostly district councils. So it's more or less as you'd expect, I think. And in particular, you know, Labour is going to do well. Other than that, it looks like a pretty sorry state. I mean, from my perspective, this is one of those elections where people are probably going to draw more conclusions from it than it probably warrants. Like all local elections, reading across international politics is very difficult. I think there are certain features of these elections which are interesting. I think as people have started to uh, realise as their postal votes have arrived, these are the first elections in which photo ID is now required in all cases. There, there was a little brouhaha as Armando Iannucci, writer of uh, The Thick of It, discovered in his postal vote that um, the forms of ID that were valid excluded uh, were largely catered to, to older people. So if you're over 60s, your seniors' bus passes, all, all different kinds of bus passes are, are allowed, but your young person's rail card, for some reason, is not. Yeah, and there really is, there's very little reason. I mean, the 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 defence is to do with sort of uh, the kind of proof and security that you have to go through to get it. But it doesn't seem to me obvious that um, that's any more difficult with, uh, you know, the various forms of older person's ID. So, the, I mean, the accusation here, I mean, just to be explicit about it, is that there's some sort of, you know, a vague attempt at gerrymandering going on or just, just increasing the amount of resistance. Well, it's kind of, it's a form of voter suppression, right? Yeah. The, the idea that people who are more likely to have valid forms of photo ID are more likely to vote Tory. Yeah. But, I mean, very broadly speaking. But young people who don't have driving licences, who maybe don't have a fixed address, and are more likely to vote against the Tories, and they are less likely to have voter ID. And also, it's worth saying, right, that voter fraud is vanishingly rare. Yes. So the need for ID, it's not clear what the need for ID is. Yeah, I mean, so that's the thing that's most sort of puzzling about about the whole enterprise, which is that it's a response to what is largely a non-problem, um, virtually every kind of expert organisation in the in the field has said, well, we don't really see that there's any need to bring this in because cases of electoral fraud, you know, as you say, they're a non-problem. Um, that said, I mean, it seems to me that there's there are obvious explanations here, or there are things that that are worth thinking about. One, as you say, is a form of sort of yeah, voter suppression, and it's probably going to have an effect on the margins. This has been made a big issue by people on the Tory backbenches. It was a big issue um, for for Steve Baker. Um, And so there's, you know, there was a form of sort of pandering um, from the previous administration to him on this issue. He was in favour, despite his libertarian. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this is one of the puzzling things actually about the whole thing, which is that there's, you know, the government was so slow in bringing forward, you know, what they were. So there is a, you can apply for a, a free identity document. They're very cautious that they won't call it an ID card. <laughs> um, and it's deliberately shaped not to be a card. It's a piece of paper with a sort of quite badly printed, you know, whether or not it's secure or not. I mean, I tried doing some digging on this. And, and because, of course, you want a secure document, you know, to allow you to vote and whether this paper is secure or not, that has some security measures on as far as I can tell, whether it's manufactured in this country is it, you know, it doesn't seem to be clear. Um, so there's, I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question around that. The the other side of this, I think, and and when it comes to kind of voter ideas, like there's something here, and I think it's worth, you know, because of course the big issue was, or the the case that's often pointed to is Tower Hamlets, and um, where there are lots of sort of sort of, uh, you know, either explicitly or sort of implicitly racist arguments that uh, are well sort of ethnically uh, 
inward-looking communities are, you know, they, they manipulate people or sort of um, bring people to the polls and, and tell them to vote a particular way. This doesn't um, seem to be, a, you know, the, there's, the, the evidence for this stuff is very scanty. Yeah, and and also with the idea that that, whereas obviously white communities don't have... Yes, of course. I mean, there is, there, there is a story. I don't know if I should tell this story. Last time, <laughs> last time my mother went to vote in a... So my parents live in a the most Tory constituency in the country, which is North East Hampshire. And going to vote in the village hall. And at one point, well, one of her neighbours kind of put his arm around her shoulder and they said, we're voting Conservative, aren't we? And it's, yeah, you're um, not supposed to do that. <laughs> and that, you know, and <laughs> so, you know, but obviously, obviously, we don't need to worry about North East Hampshire, but Tower Hamlets, yeah, all sorts of... Uh... Of course. I mean, th- I think what this does, though, and I think it's very effective in doing, is just lend a certain degree of suspicion about the sort of the legitimacy of particularly kind of inner city constituencies and local government in particular. It's just supposed to undermine a little bit of that democratic... Uh, legitimacy and faith and sense of authority that that comes to to these bodies, and so you know I I have a so this so if you have a sense that that fraud is very widespread, then you're going to start asking questions about the bodies that that get elected. I think this goes to something that 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 has been on my mind as we approach these elections, which is to do with the kind of extraordinary centralization of power in Britain in particular, and you know this is on my mind partly because of course we've just had the SNP leadership election. And so there are kind of open questions about the future of independence um, versus, say, Devo Max or or whatever. And it's been on my mind for a long time, actually, since I, I wrote a piece for the paper you know, a couple of years ago about the London mayoral elections and just the degree to which devolved bodies in this country have any sort of legitimacy or, or, or power at all. And London is particularly bad for this, right? It's nominally a sort of devolved authority that has really very minimal power um, over the city that it administers, which is very frustrating for those of us who have to live in it. Just one more thing about these elections, and I think it's worth stressing, is that this is the... So there are four directly elected mayors up for re-election um, this time. And whereas those previously had a supplementary vote system, they're now being done under first past the post. And this is part of a wider move by the government to reinstitute first past the post voting at every level. So it used to be that in various mayoral elections, including London's and and the London Assembly elections as well, they vary across the country, but you had various more democratic or more proportional anyway, forms of voting. So, So you could vote Green first choice, Labour second, and then you end up as a Labour mayor, but people are allowed to vote Green. Whereas if if you split that vote in first past the post, it will probably favour the, the Conservatives. Yep, yep, yep. So this is, again, I think, goes to this, uh, uh, you know, this perception that, that there's some degree of voter suppression going on. And again, you know, I think, you know, it, it's astonishing. I can't think of anywhere else in the world that is moving towards uh, less representative systems of voting, right? I mean, the act of choosing to make your system less representative of a diversity of political opinion seems to me to be an astonishing thing to do in this day and age, but perhaps explicable if you're a conservative. <laughs> yeah, well, very clearly. And I mean, that, <laughs> that, that question of the extreme centralisation that's happened, well, over decades, but accelerated under since... 2010. I mean, that that question of the ways in which public services have been starved under consecutive conservative administrations is, and one the main ways of doing that is by taking money away from councils, right? That the, so many public services are delivered at a local level. And, and one of the ways that the conservatives are then getting round taking the blame for things that have gone wrong while they've, they've been in office is to, is to blame Labour councils mm. while skating over the fact that they've taken the money away from them and that's why they <laughs> haven't been able to provide the services. Yeah, I mean the statistic that that people usually go for is that 60p in every pound of central grant government has been taken away from councils over the over that period of austerity under Cameron Osborne. Um and I think that's a useful way of looking at it and I think one of the things that that, that allows us 
you know to to stress is that um, although that cut is more or less equal across local authorities, there are authorities that need that money and need that central grant and uh, central government grant to go further for the people who require, in particular. So this was, you know, it was, this was part of, of the piece that I wrote for the paper on care. Um, you know, adult social care services are administered through local authorities, um, at, you know, and in the most deprived areas, um, it's more difficult because there is less money that has to go further. Um, councils have the option of, uh, you know, a precept on on council tax in order in order to you know help plug the gap, but it's really woefully insufficient. Uh, but and also, if council tax is raised on property values, that the councils which need most money are able to raise less council tax on property. Yes, well, I mean, the system of council tax is, of course, completely insane. Um, you know, I mean, it's you know, it, it, it it's one of those things where you look at it and you think, well, why are we you know, that that we're 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 basing our council tax valuations on the value of a property. Um, either as it was in, I think, 1994, or it would be if it had been built in 1994. I mean, this is a this is obviously a completely mad way um, to do things. But what it does is point up a problem in that there is so much wealth tied up in property that actually to to value them as they are now valued would cause you know and tax them on that basis would cause an enormous redistribution of wealth and and you know and that itself would also be you know to some degree unfair. There are people who are not particularly you know don't have great sort of savings or liquidity, but who are sitting on a property that has become increasingly valuable in, say, central. Think of somewhere in southeast London, for instance, somewhere like uh, uh, Camberwell, for instance. You could have bought a, a property there um, many, many years ago and it, you know, for a reasonable amount of money and it has just inflated in value. That's unjust, but it would presumably also be unjust to kind of <laughs> just uh, demand you liquidate that and pay it to government. So there's what this points us towards, of course, is the question of wealth and taxation and, you know... Um, uh, which doesn't seem to be anywhere on the agenda at the moment, sadly. <laughs> so that question, yeah, so Rishi Sunak has has made his five pledges, halving inflation, growing the economy, reducing debt, cutting NHS waiting lists, and stopping small boat crossings. Spot the odd one out. Um, but the, the, the recently appointed Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party, Lee Anderson, uh, was recorded observing, not incorrectly, that the Tories won the December 2019 general election because of Brexit, Boris and Corbyn. And he said that at the next election, they won't have those three things. So we'll have to think of something else. It'll probably be a mix of culture wars and trans debate. But that does seem to be the strategy, doesn't it? If you can describe a cynical appeal to racism and transphobia as a strategy. Well, I think it is a strategy. It's certainly a strategy that has uh, paid off to some degree um, in, in a number of other places. Yeah, I mean, I think it's troubling. And it's, you know, I, so I started, you know, by saying that it's difficult to read across from local elections, you know, this may into whenever our next general election will be. And I think that's, you know, it's quite, that's perhaps another question. It's quite hard to tell. I mean, it has to happen by January 2025. It may well be that late, um, if it doesn't happen in, in May next year. I mean, that's one of the things I think is sometimes concealed by the fact that we've had so many changes in administration that um, actually this parliament is in its dying days. It's on its last legs. You know, it's, this is around the time when you would expect someone to start preparing for a general election. So Anderson, you know, is right. They don't have the advantages that they had last time. And, you know, and that does seem to be the strategy that they're going for. Obviously, in, in these elections, I don't think you know, it's going to be terribly effective. And in fact, in, in some ways, one of the one of the problems, and one of the problems that, that that strategy is intended to address, is that the public realm in Britain has been decaying for years upon years upon years. And I mean that not only in the sense that, say, your bins don't get collected, you know, your road has potholes in it, you know, your local leisure centre is closed down, um, the school's walls are falling off, you know, these kind of things. That's certainly true. But it's also true politically and discursively as well. Nothing new has happened in British politics, you know, for, you know, eight years. We're still talking about the same things that we were talking about in 2016, um, you know, 15, 16. So, you know, I think that's that there is a, a sense of sort of political exhaustion here. And one of the difficulties is about seeing the way in which that can move forward. But to be I guess specific about those those things in particular. It's striking to me that that the trans issue seems to be concentrated within the press, 
And for all its efforts to whip up enormous concern in the public, it really doesn't seem to be particularly high on people's agendas, partly because there are so many things that are so pressing, including the fact that butter costs three times as much as it did a few years ago. You know, the fact that there aren't vegetables that you can feed your children. Um, These things are always going to rank higher on that list of concerns. The small boats issue, you know, it's striking to me. So one of the arguments that's often made about British politics at the moment is that, like it or not, the salience of migration after Brexit has decreased really significantly. So people, you know, it's no longer high up on the list of people's concerns. And that's perhaps partly because so many other things have gone dreadfully wrong in the country since. You know, I don't think Britain has suddenly started liking refugees, although there was a moment, you know, in late 2015, you know, early 2016, when I thought the political conversation might be changing slightly on that. But um, that appears to have vanished you know so so the small boat thing i find i find you know on one level i understand what's happening right i understand the strategy that's going on here the strategy as you say is to cater towards a sort of you know frankly racist fear of migrants in particular and in particular to that economic fear i think that attended you know the worst excesses of the bnp in the late labor years that migrants were going to take from people who had so little already and who were already suffering and who were already, you know, struggling very hard. And it's, you know, it's clear from the way that Suela Bravman speaks um, that, that that's, that's the intention. The thing that's puzzling to me about it is that it's not going to work, right? I mean, or, or at least on the level of policy, it's not going to work. There doesn't seem to me to be anything, you know, they're not going to stop the crossings. <laughs> you know, absent shooting people in the sea which, you know, they're not there yet, but I, I wouldn't rule it out in the medium term. But, you know, absent that, they, you know, you're, you're not going to stop the crossings. <laughs> so to make it a pledge is puzzling to me. You know, I don't, I don't see the advantage in it other than to kind of provoke uh, a debate about race and migration on which Labour will be on the back foot. I mean, in a sense, it isn't. It needn't be a problem. That it's actually very small numbers of people who are asking for asylum in the UK, yeah. who could be quite easily provided with asylum. Most of the people come to the UK because they have ties in the country, and there you go. So, it's, I mean, it's a confected problem. And the way that, if you just point point out to many people who are worried about the number of migrants coming to the UK, how many refugees there are in Turkey, how many refugees there are in Uganda. It's the number who it's it's vanishingly tiny, and, it, and there's even a sense in which the Braverman almost admits that that she said on Sunday that there are you know seven million people without work in the UK, which is remarkable for hearing a government minister exaggerating unemployment figures, <laughs> where the political conversation has come. Um, but then, if you send two hundred people to Rwanda, that's not going to help the seven million people who don't have work, or the 14 million people in poverty, including 4 million children. And, I mean, surely no one can think it is. So all you're doing, it's a distraction tactic, isn't it? You go on and on and on and on about the small boats as a way of trying to stop people talking about the real problems. Yeah, I think that's right. I I mean, what what I suppose I would say, and I suppose the difficult thing is that because of the way that asylum seekers are distributed in the UK, you know, that there are flashpoints in which at a local level, it can seem like the problem is overwhelming. And that's true um, in those uh, southeast England coastal towns. But it's also true um, in various towns in the north, many of which are suffering very, very badly at the moment, where there is cheap hotels, where there are cheap hotels to put people. And I should say, you know, asylum seeker housing is appalling very often. I mean, these are people who are living in in often very, very appalling conditions. The providers will often, you know, undertake, you know, forms of of markation of these houses. So they'll, you know, it used to be that doors would be painted a particular colour, you know, so they they would become, you know, very visible in in local communities. You know, and so so there are local problems here. I agree entirely on on a national level, this is is a non-problem. It is a solvable problem and it is a non-problem. But it seems to me to point to or to be a symptom of a wider reactionary turn um, in British politics, not that the Conservative Party has been anything other than pretty reactionary, you know, um, post, you know, I don't think they were particularly progressive under Cameron, but, you know, there's a noticeable shift in, in its politics. 
And, you know, it seems to me that there's an enduring international crisis, you know, on, on many fronts, climate being one of them, that is going to produce an increasing number of asylum seekers. This is a very widely acknowledged phenomenon. And it has been for a while an open question about how wealthy and prosperous countries would respond to that. It seems to me clear now that the way that wealthy countries are going to respond to that is to pull up the drawbridge. This is particularly easy on an island nation. It is particularly easy to make a difficult political issue on an island nation. But it seems to me to be symptomatic of a wider, you know, a wider problem in that, you know, as you say, if you can't do anything or you're not willing to do anything about low wages, a prosperous economy in which wealth is concentrated in the hands of very, very few people, in which there is an enormous, enormously unequal division of wealth, then you have to find something else to be um, concerned about and to blame it on. I mean, you know, the, the prominent uh, reactionary academic Matthew Goodwin is doing great ideological work for the Conservative Party on this front in, you know, effectively arguing that, um, you know, real power, and it, this becomes, you know, extremely hazy in his argument, really lies in the hands of sort of, you know, the liberal elite kind of... Um, you and me. <laughs> what he means is, yeah, yeah, what he means is us. Uh, and I assure you, if I had anything <laughs> approaching um, real power in this country, things would look really quite different. But I do think this is... so. You know, what we are living through in real time, you know, as far as I'm concerned, is a, is a quite, quite significant change in the coordinates of contemporary politics. And that's going to be very confusing, I think, to, to those of us who have been intellectually produced in uh, an environment where we have had the sort of, the, you know, basically the modernist coordinates of kind of post-war politics, the questions of distribution, questions of the nation state, um, in which various... Uh, kind of historical legacies have been less important. I think those things are changing, and they're changing, you know, partly, you know, on every front. This is, you know, so what I mean here is these questions of sort of nationhood and identity have become um, much, much, much sharper, and they've become sharper on the left as well as the right. And on the left, it's often to do with the you know, reckoning with the legacy of slavery and exploitation. So the kind of coordinates in, you know, on which politics is founded seem to be shifting slightly. And this is one of the things that I think makes everything feel a bit uncomfortable and a bit unpredictable. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm not particularly hopeful about the shape of that shift. Well, I have to ask you to get be more specific about that in, yeah. in some ways. But I mean, the question of wealth distribution, I mean, is an obvious one. I mean, Jeremy Hunt's chancellor, his first budget as chancellor in February, sort of the most prominent thing that he did was to scrap the limit on tax-free private pension pots. Allegedly, I mean, in a sense, appealing to an older idea of conservative politics uh, supposedly in order to persuade senior doctors not to retire it's kind of is this is this really the only way you can think of to do this and is that at all I mean was anyone convinced by that or is it just everyone could see it's uh you know if you've already got a million quid in your pension pot don't worry you can top it up some more yeah 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 yeah. I mean it was an extraordinarily cynical thing wasn't it it's not as if the policy tools don't exist to provide specific carve outs for NHS workers to return to work I mean it's a very very clear statement that what you need to care about is the capacity for wealth transfer you know rather than expecting there to be effectively a, a state to do the work of redistributing wealth sufficiently in every generation that you don't have to rely on familial patrimony in order to have a sort of nice-ish life. And I think, you know, this is a particularly sharp problem in Britain, but it seems to me to be, you know, a wider problem in the developed world, this question about the, you know, and, and on one level, this is the kind of Thomas Piketty question about the, the accumulation of wealth and whether there's that tension between effectively you know, familial structure and the structure of the state. So whether the state, you know, is willing to intervene to redistribute wealth in order to reproduce its kind of social structure generation upon generation, or whether in fact it is increasingly too weak to do so. And therefore the sort of, you know, it almost feels uh, like a sort of devolution um, or, or kind of retrojection towards a kind of more unequal, you know, less uh, less universalist sense of, of what politics is for, and, you know, the way in which it kind of caters to particular strata. Um, so I don't think it's not great. Um, <laughs> it's not a great thing to be living through. 
I do think there are countervailing tendencies. I mean, I ha- you know, like I don't think everything is so bleak and that we are going to, you know, live through kind of total state breakdown in which the mechanisms for you know, even basic kind of social reproduction disappear. The return to feudalism. By yeah, James I mean, I don't think we're, <laughs> I don't think we're there yet. But it is striking that there is, you know, alongside this sense um, that that kind of redistribution of any significant kind is off the cards, that there is this kind of, you know, partly exported from the United States, this return of extraordinarily um, reactionary cultural positions. And I, you know, here in particular, it's positions on sex and gender, this kind of confected brouhaha about drag queens. But the grooming gang stuff is part of this as well. So that there is, you know, so that there are kind of, you know, sexually threatening ethnic groups. And then there are kind of degenerate homosexuals, um, of which I am a, a happy and proud part. But this is, you know, I, so this is the return of this to the kind of mainstream political conversation. You know, and it's been so this stuff circulates on, on Facebook and things like that. But but for it to be so central to the conservative project seems to me to be a new thing and, and rather a worrying one. Yeah, I mean, the grooming gangs is a question that, that has been you know, the headline for the government the last few days. And that's the, the claim that police forces and social services and labour councils have been turning a blind eye to the organised sexual abuse of white girls by British Pakistani men. When, I mean, even the Home Office... The Home Office's own figures show that most sort of group sexual abuse of minors, actual grooming gangs, are made up of white men in their 20s. So if you're actually looking for grooming gangs, it's <laughs> that's who. But that's not who anyone's talking about because it's, you know, I mean, it's like sort of the white slave trade panic 100 years ago. Yes. Yes. I mean, the other side of this is that reports into the specifics here are to do with, you know, it's, you know, so the the argument made by the Conservative Party is that political correctness prevented this um, from being uh, adequately, you know, tackled, prosecuted, stopped, stamped out, etc. You know, you read the, the reports into this stuff, and they're not, they're not pleasant reading. But what what emerges and what appears to be the case is is less to do with political correctness in terms of, of race and much more to do with scepticism about the accounts of young women um, who were not perfect victims, um, you know, who went back to the men involved or who were drinking or who were perceived as unreliable, often by police officers. And that seems to have been a major obstacle. Um, so, so really, what we should be talking about is misogyny, um, rather than, um, you know, r- rather than the stuff that the, the government wants to talk about. And so it's, it's cynical, it's deeply, deeply unpleasant, it's deeply destructive. I mean, you know, the, we, you know, of course, there was that, you know, a recent case in which you, you, you see these cases tear apart communities, often, you know, fueled by this kind of paranoiac, racist disposition. And, and, and you can see exactly what it, it feeds on. It feeds on a sense that nobody in authority and nobody in power gives a damn about these communities at all. And no wonder, therefore, that, that it's easy to perceive that there must be these kind of gangs of, of people that have come in to, to fill the gap, because in every other part of people's life, they see these kind of cabals or, or you know, little groupings of um, people giving each other favours and, and, you know, fixing things at, at a local level. It do, you know, it happens. It's not an ethnic thing. It just it's a power thing. Yeah, well, or giving giving people PPE contracts because you met them because they run the well, pub exactly. next door. I mean, it's the same. Yes, yeah, yes, <laughs> and, and and also that problem. I mean, that this constant returning to to law and order, and we'll get to this the Labour Party as well as the solution. That actually, if you problems of housing, problems of education, problems of unemployment, problems of social services, problems of lack of. <laughs> well, even lack of leisure centres and libraries, these things you're talking about, that if you'd want to, you know, if you were to put money into solving those problems, many of the apparent law and order problems. Right, right. Would, and if you zoom out, I think disappear. one of the, the problems that all of this comes from, or, or that's lying behind all of it, and you're looking at it from a kind of 30,000 feet of view, is that, you know, the kind of hydrocarbon associated growth that sponsored so much of, of this stuff over the course of the 20th century 
you know, hasn't stopped, but it's kind of being choked off. And what replaces it, and it's a difficulty facing all developed countries again, but, you know, Britain in particular, you know, how you, you know, how, you know, a return to growth of any kind or a return, you know, an answer to the productivity problem, you know, what replaces what replaces that in the future for Britain is not, you know, it's not abundantly clear, actually. It certainly isn't clear what will happen, you know, even over the next two years. I don't, you know, and perhaps we'll come on to this when we talk about the Labour Party. You know, it's not clear to me at all um, that things are going to look any better in two, five, seven years' time. Yeah, I mean, well, one answer to that question of the economy is the Green New Deal or a Green New Deal or some version of that, that the future of human life or life as we know it on the planet depends on a transition as fast as possible away from fossil fuels. And that's going to take a lot of work and people are going to need to do that work. So in a sense, you know, the Green New Deal does seem the way out. And up to a point, maybe that's one of the things that, I mean, in Britain, you know, if we've we've talked about Sunak's, well, we've mentioned Sunak's five pledges, there's Keir Starmer's five missions for a better Britain. And the reason that, you know, the argument behind the, the calling them missions is to get away from short termism. If you have a mission, it means you're looking in the long term. But it also sounds like management speak, but there we go. And they are to secure the highest sustained growth in the G7, because it's all about competing with other countries, obviously. Make Britain a clean energy superpower. I don't know. I, I find that idea quite appealing. Build an NHS fit for the future. When you get into the small print, that seems to be a lot of involving private without spending any money on it, which involves privatisation. And it's quite worrying. Make Britain's streets safe and then break down the barriers to opportunity at every stage, which is a sound bite to win elections. Yeah, yeah. So so that's, that, that leaves us with the two substantive ones, doesn't it? That leaves us with, oh, so the, the highest sustained growth in the G7, which is not going to happen. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, you know, I you know, I mean many things are possible, but like I the no. Um I mean, you know, again, the question here is like I, you actually probably could manage it depending on how you define sustained. You could probably pull out all the stops and produce I don't know, 3 quarters maybe a year of extraordinary growth. You could probably manage that, but then you would run into kind of significant problems. Um you know, growth is down across the G7, but you know that I mean, Germany, Japan, like you really think on on a sustained level over time? No, it doesn't seem doesn't seem like that's going to happen. You know, probably not a bad thing to aim for, but it's a kind of bizarre thing to to argue. The the green green energy superpower stuff again recognizes that that as you say, this is this really is the you know, and I I say this as someone for whom this is in one sense the only thing that matters, right? Like that 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 this is the one thing you know that that i think guides if we don't do this then yeah then it doesn't matter what else you do because it's the end yeah yeah but so this the the most substantive line under this is rachel reeves's promise to spend 28.5 billion per annum um, on a green revolution now the question about this is 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 you know and that's great that's a that's a really substantial promise and and it really matters you know whether it's enough or not is is an open question and and I'm aware we're talking about a lot of money already but you know who knows it also matters just like the NHS pledge it matters where the money goes right it matters whether this stuff is going into the hands of kind of private um private industry or whether it's going into things that are are going to be um you know collectively owned and i mean that not just as a point of principle i mean that in order to produce that in order to for the change to happen in the way that we need it to happen at the speed that we need it to happen, you know the inefficiency of the private sector, you know needs to be off the cards. It needs to be the kind of bizarre perversions of profit seeking, you know, which is eminently visible in private healthcare and in and certainly in private social care. You know that stuff needs to be off the table when it comes to green transformation and. I don't know about you, but I don't really see, you know, Rachel Reeves. Um, I don't, I, I don't see her as a real champion of the public sector, as opposed to kind of private gain. And in particular, you know, th- this impression is is encouraged by her recent declaration that Labour has no interest in taxing wealth. Uh, you know, um, so this is, you know, what she responded when people were pointing out that the Prime Minister had earned earned is the wrong word, had acquired vast amounts of money as a result of his investments and, and that this was taxed at a lower rate 
than wealth acquired through work. Um, she said, well, you know, Labour is not, you know, has no plans at the moment to tax that stuff at an equal rate. And that's such an open goal. It's such an open goal. And if she's not willing to do that, and this is, you know, I I find, you know, if she's not willing to do that, then I'm, you know, one worries about what they're going to do in power. Yeah. Well, it's the, yeah, well, I don't know if it's the, well, it may even be directly quoting Peter Mandelson, you know, or he may be the one whispering in their ears. But when Peter Mandelson said, New Labour has no problem with people getting filthy rich. I mean, it was it was a problematic thing to say, but it was at a time when the country was wealthier. Yes. I suppose as a whole, it didn't it didn't seem that. I don't know why I'm trying to justify it. Then I mean, it was bad enough. Then it's even worse now. Is what I suppose I'm trying to say. Yeah. No, I agree. But the second part of that quotation is as long as they pay their taxes. But then the argument is that Sunak does pay his taxes because he pays capital gains tax. But capital gains tax. Well, exactly. That's the problem. Yeah, exactly. That's the problem. Um, you know, the, <laughs> that's the problem. They they do. They you know. I mean, you know, lots of them don't really pay their taxes. But you know, the the and Mandelson was actually really very relaxed about them not paying their taxes either. <laughs> um, so, but yes, it's certainly the case that Mandelson is sort of whispering in people's ears at the moment. There was a piece by him. Um, so less whispering than trumpeting. Really, there was a piece. Um, uh, in in the Times in in the last week, in which he says, you know, uh, it's important that people, you know, that that Labour aims for public service reform without spending any money, which is, you know, the sort of dead hand of the Blair era, um, you know, emerging if, uh, from its shallow grave. Well, and also, it's just it's just not possible, is it? No, it isn't possible. And I mean, I think that's the thing that's that's so, you know, that's so striking both about the sort of wave of strikes at the moment, but simply living in the country over the course of the past five years. It's so obvious that so many things are crying out for investment. And one of the problems that I think many of us encounter is, you know, imagine you you walk through central London, you can see wealth, there is wealth in this country, you know, there are these extraordinary buildings, there are these extraordinary, uh, you know, uh, these kind of extraordinary businesses that are catering to to the extremely wealthy. If let's go to Nine Elms and see the kind of swimming pool in the sky, there's clearly money in this country, where it goes and how much of it ends up in the, the exchequer. And then, you know, why it doesn't feed through to the public realm, to the you know public services that that you know, and I suppose the thing that I'm saying with this is that 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 that's a very dangerous experience because what it produces is a real reluctance to believe that government can do things, and so it seems to me that one of the dangers, one of the political dangers over the course of the next decade or so, is either a you know, slide into kind of political extremism of a kind that says, well, the government, you know, the problem here is is democratic government totally. Um, and so we need some form of government that is not democratic or, or that is less democratic than the one that we have now. That is a danger. The other danger is a kind of qualunquismo, a sort of, um, you know, whateverism, a sort of, you know, ah, oh, well, I'm not going to, I'm just, I, I can't be bothered. I don't think any of this will ever work. I don't think, you know, any kind of political project is worth my time. Um, so I'm just going to shrug. But you can see why people, you can see why people are feeling that. I mean, one of the things that seems puzzling, you know, is that Labour, they have a consistent 15 point lead in the polls They kind of, it seems there's no way at the moment, as things carry on as they are, there is no way that they can lose next election so by the beginning of 2025 at the latest unless something completely unforeseen happens Keir Starmer will be prime minister and there'll be a Labour government with a large majority so given all that it seems the question is why do you think they're being so cautious is it the fear that actually we're this is 1991 not 1996 and that we're going to have you know it's 13 years of Tory rule and there's a new uncharismatic leader of <laughs> prime minister leader of the Tory party and yet, you know, they had that, the Sheffield rally, and here's Neil Kinnock, the next Prime Minister of Great Britain, and turns out he wasn't. Are they so frightened of repeating that again? Or is this actually what the current leadership wants and believes? And they have this opportunity to say, we've got the lead, now's the time we can set out our stall. And here it is. Well, I do, I, I do think there is a sort of a strong imprint of the 91-92 experience in, in Labour. 
And, you know, part of it is just that the Labour Party is really used to losing elections, right? That That's the sort of default setting. It, it expects to, very often expects to lose elections, is deeply, deeply, deeply fearful. It, it treats getting into power as something that sort of happens by a huge stroke of fate, you know, and therefore it's very cautious ahead of time. And so, so yes, I think to some degree the expectation is that this, you know, even if it doesn't feel like 1991, that it might be. <laughs> and so there's a, there, there is, I think, a legitimate fear about, up, you know, upsetting things. Nonetheless, I find it hard to see how, how the next election doesn't result in a Keir Starmer government. I think the polls will narrow. Um, I think, to be honest, the fractious nature of the SNP leadership campaign um, is probably you know, a net benefit for Keir Starmer um, in the medium term. It probably means that Labour will recover some seats in Scotland. Um, that's a very, very good thing for, for the Labour Party. However, so so let me make a const- let me make the kind of case that people around Keir Starmer who are kind of pro Keir Starmer make to me. They say Keir Starmer is not going to do Corbynism, you know, with a sort of professional face. That's not who he is. That's not what he's ever believed. And yes, he lied um, in you know in order to to get into that position. And most people don't care that he lied to get into that position. However, he is a mainstream social democrat who will invest more money in public services, will try to do green things, will, I don't know, not uh, pursue kind of pointlessly cruel and reactionary politics. If you care anything at all about this country, you want that to happen in the course of the next election. And I think, you know, that's a fair enough position. I don't, you know, what, what I worry about is if at this moment when they have, as you say, so substantial a lead, all they can do is sort of cavil before um, the Murdoch press, sort of crawl um, over glass to to kind of agree with the government on many of the things that it's doing. I mean, you know, for me, the the major concern is 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 less to do because you know I do think that that there will be a degree of investment that that doesn't exist at the moment, and I do think some of the kind of more obvious kind of roots of corruption will be closed. You know, I think Keir Starmer is quite sincere about wanting to reform the House of Lords um, or abolish it. In in, in fact, um, I don't think it will actually happen, but I think he's quite sincere about it. Um, you know, if they're so cautious now, the sort of attacks that they will be under when they are actually in power, um, you know, seems to me, you know, it's not, you know, I don't have, you know, I don't have much faith, um, put it that way. You know, the, the other thing here is that I think there is an implicit expectation that after the sort of turbulent period of politics that have, you know, that has characterised um, the last few years, so you know, uh, Brexit, Corbynism, Johnson, um, that that there is a desire to return to the kind of what they perceive as being the historic mean um, of of British politics, and that they're going to be able to do that and act in this sort of rather managerial, um, efficient way. I don't think that's going to happen, um, because it seems to me that there are. Uh, you know, international objective problems which make it impossible to do politics in that way um, again. And so it seems to me that there is a, you know, and so so Starmer is very, he's very into sort of saying, well, I ran um, the CPS, um, I know how to run a large organisation and therefore I know how to run a country. Those two things are different um, and they are more different now than they were, you know, in 1997. Um you know the country is 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 so um, you know you know and the international situation is such that it you know that kind of approach while it has its merits and i have to say it has its merits you know competence is not a negligible thing um you know nonetheless i don't think it's it's adequate to what we're going to see over the next the course of the next 5 years and nowhere is that more obvious than the question of organized labor itself Right. I mean, so and this is one of the, the, the you know, so I, for, for my sins, listened to um, Cool Keir. I didn't listen to all of it, but on, on LBC. Um, and he, you know, he's saying, well, I couldn't possibly give the junior doctors 35 percent. And, oh, I, I, you know, I support the right to strike, but I wish this strike wasn't happening. You're thinking, yes, OK, well, you are behaving as if you were prime minister now. Um, you know, 
I don't, I, you know, it's it's not a great situation, you know. I, 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 and I worry about, you know, this is a, you know, this is a party that comes from organized labor and, and whether we end up in a situation in which sort of organized labor and the kind of historic political expression of organized labor are, uh, are in this kind of, you know, extremely... Um, but, I mean, you could say that that break... Well, it began before Blair. But no, 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 no. I think no, no, no. I think no, 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 no. It's 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 much much older than that. You know, my my anxiety is is that there's just there's just nothing in the tank ideologically or, or kind of intellectually that allows them to think about how you actually deal with this problem in a way that isn't just taking on the unions. You know, um, that I don't think that there's a you know that the, the so this is I mean maybe this is just you know, just to touch on something that keeps circulating in this in the press, which is this kind of sense that, you know, where's the big Keir Starmer idea? And, you know, in a sense, one of the things that, that, that this doesn't seem to grasp is that there have been a series of kind of, you know, big announcements and big policies and big kind of commitments that the party then sort of announces and then rather resiles from and, you know, it seems very cautious about kind of actively embracing. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I, I struggle, I you know, I struggle to know you know, maybe this is, you know, you know, maybe I, I'm slightly too young to remember the the kind of the political character of the campaign prior to Blair. Um, but one of the arguments made about it is that actually it was an equally cautious campaign to the kind of campaign that is being, you know, implicitly waged by the Labour Party now, that the commitments, the, the explicit commitments were actually very few um, and that it took, you know, some time in power for, for Labour to become a sort of reforming um, uh, a government of any kind. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's worth citing that argument. I'm a bit sceptical about it. Well, I don't know. It doesn't feel the same. It feels very different to me compared to the, <laughs> the way it felt in the mid-90s. But, yeah. I mean, the other thing to say here, I suppose, the other thing to say here, I suppose, is there's the spectre of Corbyn. And one of the, I think, very difficult legacies of Corbynism is that it makes it both easy and attractive to reject policy positions that were associated with that leadership because of the kind of huge act of damnatio memoriae that's been going on um, about the whole period. So the argument that's often made by people on the left of the Labour Party is that, well, however personally unpopular Corbyn was or became, um, many of the policies associated with him you know, nationalisation of key you know public services. Um, you know, a relatively progressive approach to asylum and migration, although not that progressive. Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And this kind of you know British gas and water socialism uh, is you know and has always been and remains very very popular with the electorate. And it would be it would it, it is insane really to to reject that merely because. Um, you know, it's associated with Corbyn. But the point is, of course, that it's very convenient <laughs> that it's associated with Corbyn. And that there has been a concerted effort by the British press, you know, to associate those ideas with a, a kind of discredited period um, in, in Labour Party history um, and to actively discredit and utterly damn anyone who was associated um, even tangentially with that stuff. This, of course, is accompanied by by Starmer's own sort of authoritarian moves within the party to, to cement... Um, you know his his base, and particularly to uh, exclude and remove, you know, really, really quite a lot of the the left within sort of uh, uh, elected positions in the party. So you know, I mean that 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 I suppose is the other side of this that there is you know there is an un- there is a, a an unfortunate legacy, you know, not intentional, but it's one of the consequences of losing is that your political opponents get to damn your positions. Yeah. Well, it's the party of law and order in its internal. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so th- this, this, I suppose, is the other thing to say, I think, perhaps about an incipient Starmer government, which is that one of the things that has become increasingly clear, and I think perhaps was clear if you examined his tenure as director of public prosecutions, is that this is a party which, you know, may on some fronts, you know, be be mildly economically progressive. But when it comes to questions of human rights, when it comes to questions of law and order, when it comes to questions um, of, of particularly, I think, transparent or open government, um, these are areas where I think, you know, there, there are going, there's going to be, need to be a lot of pressure on Starmer in particular. And for me, the telling moment 
with that was the you know his move to hire Sue Gray as his uh, uh, chief of staff. And Gray's reputation within the civil service um, is a highly competent but extremely opaque operator. So she she's renowned for giving tips about how to ensure that documents don't um, you know become available to journalists um, or are, are unfoiable um, or, or or disappear in one way or another. Um, you know, I'm sure within within the bounds of law, of course, in in her case. But um, but so that seems to me to be a really obvious tell about the direction of a of a potential um, future Starmer government. And so perhaps if any NGO people are thinking about what they would want to do under a Labour government, that would be a really good place to go. But until then, there's, you know, <laughs> you've got at least another year, possibly yeah. nearly two years yeah. Of, yeah. of Tory government. Um, you know, so before they can build a better Britain, better than Yes. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, I think things are certainly going to get worse over that period. I mean, you know, the the... The other thing that will be on the agenda, I think, is if they continue to blow up the small boats issue is simply, you know, conflict with the the human rights organisations, but in particular, the European Court. Um, That, of course, is actually really a great thing for them. I mean, they they want uh, that sort of conflict. It's a good, you know, it works very well for them. Um, You know, for those of us who, you know, who are concerned about human rights, it's not a particularly great, um, you know, great conflict to, to see. But it's a way of keeping the, the Brexit, Brexit argument going, yeah. which is possibly another reason, a political reason for making it an issue, because it's a way of continuing presenting the, the EU as as the bad guys. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think you know, despite yeah, it being yeah, not yeah, a European knows, Union, <laughs> who knows the difference? Which, you know, yeah, people. Yeah, <laughs> who cares? Uh, no, 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 no. And I'm, but I think it's you know, it, it is that sense of you know, and and again, this is a theme that I think will. You know, at, at its most fundamental level, will 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 resonate o- over the course of the next decade. Is this question of exactly, you know, where where sovereignty lies um, and who gets to kind of decide what um, in in terms of self government? And and you know, this this is an exhausted theme, I think, in some ways since um, since twenty sixteen. But it's it's nonetheless an important one and one that is, I think, instinctively politically very appealing to many people um you know the the question of self-government particularly if you feel like your life is not particularly self-governed or autonomous is you know is a politically very attractive prospect the the promise that you can take back control is a very appealing one james butler thank you very much it's been a pleasure thank you you can read james butler's piece on the care crisis in the 2nd of march issue of the lrb or in our online archive his next piece for the paper will be on the altogether happier subject of italo calvino If you have any thoughts about this episode of the LRB podcast or any other that you'd like to share, you can email us at podcasts at lrb.co.uk. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.